Anne Packer is the award-winning author of the Silver Rush Mystery Series, set in 19th century Colorado. And yes, that is Silver Rush, as distinct from the possibly more well-known Gold Rush. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Anne talks about how a close family relationship led to her writing the Colorado-based Silver Rush series, and how she's combined being a science writer by day with being a fiction writer by night, and why she says being a science writer has been a big advantage in writing this series. Our giveaway is Murderous May Mystery Books, including number two in my Of Gold and Blood mystery series, Brother Betray, which is also now out in audio for anyone who prefers to listen to their stories. Links for that giveaway and all the other things we discuss in this episode are found in the show notes for this episode at the website thejoysofbingereading.com. And you can now look for Binge Reading on YouTube. Audio only, no video. If you like to consume your podcast through YouTube, now you can hear Binge Reading that way. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, leave us a positive comment so others will find us too. Word of mouth is still the best publicity anyone can get. But now, here's Anne. Hello there, Anne, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, and it's so great to be here. Thank you, Jenny. Now, just to get our geography straight before we begin, you're in Northern California and I'm in New Zealand and we're about 16 hours apart. I'm right about Northern California, am I? That's correct. Yep, about 50 miles away from San Francisco. Most people know it's San Francisco, so yeah. That's not that far. I must admit I have dri- driven up that Captain, it's the Captain Cook Highway in the, par- in the past, yeah. Well, Captain Cook Highway, I don't know what that is. Oh, I thought that it was the coastal road. I thought it was called Captain Cook Highway. Maybe I've got that wrong. I think you're talking Highway 101. But in any case, along the coast, it's beautiful. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's gorgeous. (laughs) Look, you're an award-winning writer with eight books to your credit, and they're called the Silver Rush Mystery Series, and they're set initially in Leadville, Colorado, although the most recent book, which we're going to be talking about today, you've moved to San Francisco. So tell us how you got started with these. I understand you've got a family connection with the Leadville area. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's actually, I have a lot of family history in Colorado in general. My parents were raised there and I still have cousin and a brother who was there. But it actually was my paternal grandmother who was raised in Leadville in the late 19th century. And this was a bit of family history I didn't know until I was, oh gosh, into my 40s and heading toward 50. And as a family genealogist, I was shocked because truly all she ever talked about, I remember, was she talked about Denver, Colorado and how wonderful it was and how she met grandpa and stuff. So when my uncle told me that my grandmother was raised in Leadville, I was like, what's Leadville? I've never heard of this place. And my uncle got very excited and said, oh my gosh, it was just the biggest mining area in in the country at the time and silver mining. And people came from all over. It was like the gold rush in California. He says, oh, Anne, I know you've been thinking about writing some fiction. 
you need to research Leadville and set a novel there. I just followed my uncle's directions. <laughs> and it's been quite a journey, I got to say. So was it a bigger area than the Nevada area, was it, in its time? In its time, it was. It, people came from all over the world to Leadville. And many of them didn't realize it's, it's up at 10,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains. So it's like almost like two miles. And uh, there was no infrastructure at first and no railroads. So people would get up there and spend their last pocket money and be stuck in a place where winter lasts nine months out of the year. And it, there were some harrowing stories from up there in that time. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So your lady sleuth, Inez, she has been on quite a journey herself because she started out on the East Coast and she ended up in Leadville. So in book one, she makes that transition. Tell us a bit about Inez and where she came from. Okay. First of all, I'll just say this right out. Inez Stannard is my granny's maiden name. Ah. The one who was raised in Leadville. Now, granny was a very proper woman. And... But I just loved her name. I thought it, it had such a strong ring to it. And I wanted to honor her in some way. So I actually asked the family, I said, the ones that were left, she was long gone. Did you, Granny would be okay if I took her name and gave it to this rough, this strong-minded, strong-willed woman who runs a saloon up Huntville. And they said, oh, she'd love it. She'd just be tickled. She'd think it was great. That's how the name came about. And when I was trying to think of her background, I'd been reading about a lot of the people who came West, started on the East Coast. And I just put together a background where she's from a wealthy East Coast family. Father is one of those capitalist industrialist sort who makes a fortune in iron. And that none of that's actually in the book because you don't really go into a lot of background. But she comes from a very privileged background, but she's a very wild child. And she basically meets this handsome, sweet-talking gambling man, and she just kicks over the traces and ends <laughs> west with him. So that would be her husband, Mark Stannard. It was fun. It was fun to write someone who comes from a privileged background, but is able to be a bit of a chameleon and fashion herself as need be for the situation. Yes. So as you mentioned, she has to become a card sharp and a saloon owner in Leadville. There isn't perhaps too much else for her to do, but she's moved on through the book. She's now moved on. She had a rather unrespectable persona in that, those first few books, but now she's in San Francisco. She's gathered a young woman to her side as a guardian, Antonia. And so she's now trying to remake herself as a respectable businesswoman, largely for Antonia's sake, so that Antonia will be able to have a decent life. And in this book, a building that she purchases as an investment with a friend, one of the walls tumbles down virtually the first night they own it and there's a body in the wall and there's also gold coins in the wall so that's a great way to start and it's quite a temptation with all these gold coins to try and find out what's been going on tell us about the is it called the secret in the wall yeah yeah the secret yeah. in the wall and yeah it's been a lot of fun although it was rather unexpected to Inez decided she was going to San Francisco and off she went bringing Antonia with her 
And she helps women who run small businesses. Yes. In yeah. Francisco, and she supports them with money and forms business partnerships. I'm always on the lookout for ideas, plot ideas that show up in either historical documents or newspapers. And actually, this body in the wall thing was born from a real incident in San Francisco where they were digging in the basement or sub-basement of a San Francisco house and unearthed a coffin <laughs> and a perfectly preserved body inside. And they had no idea who this was. How did they end up down here? Well, it turns out that the house was sitting on top of what used to be an old cemetery in San Francisco. All the bodies had theoretically been moved. Ah, they missed a few, including this one. And I read that article back in 2016. I think, and it just sat in the back of my mind. I was thinking, that is so cool. And then when it came time to write this book, it was like the body just moved into the wall. <laughs> and it was like, well, let's see what happens from here. <laughs> and uh, Antonia, who's about 12 or 13, no one's real sure of her age. She's fascinated by Treasure Island, which at this point is coming out in serial form in a young adult magazine. And so when the body falls out along and a fake eye pops out of the skull, rolls across this floor, <laughs> and then you've got the gold. Antonia's thinking, hiring. <laughs> and Inez is more like, who is this? And who does the gold belong to? Because Inez always has her eye on the financial end of things. So yeah, that, yeah. that was the start of it. Looking back to Leadville, what's Leadville like today compared with in the 1880s? It is a much quieter place. Yeah. In the, oh, I think it was in 1880, 1879, 1880, there was actually talk of making it the capital of Colorado. It wow. was that big. Yeah. And that rich. Mm. There was a lot of money coming, coming in and coming out of Leadville. And so there were like, I don't know, 20,000 people living there up at the top of the mountain. And now it's much quieter. The mining industry has pretty much gone away. There's one or two small operations, but it's become a mecca. This is very interesting for extreme sports. Oh, people who will run a hundred miles all above 10,000 feet. Gosh. And yeah. Just that sort of thing, or bicycle or cross-country ski. It's people are starting to realize that this is really a lovely place. So you get a lot of second home buyers popping up and it's changing. It was very quiet for a long time. And now I think there's more interest in it as a place for people to spend time, not just for the history, but for the beauty of the area and for the sports that are possible. Yes. Yeah. Are there many historic buildings left? Is it anything like, say, Virginia City, where there's a real sense of the past history? Oh, yes. At this point, if you walk down Harrison Street, which is the main street in town, Harrison Avenue, they still have the boardwalks. Wow. So yeah. you can walk on it and get a sense of what that sounds like. And if you just imagine hundreds and hundreds of feet walking up and down and going here and going there. And even the side roads or the side avenues and streets also had a lot of the historical houses still. It's really wonderful. 
for, and they put together some great hiking trails through the mining district, which is all quiet now. It's a great place to visit and get a sense of the history. Yeah, you can still do that. They haven't knocked it all down. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And of course, pretty well everybody has heard of the gold rush, but hardly anybody really has heard of the silver rush and certainly not as far as I understand it in Colorado. They go on a lot about the uh, the ones that were on the border of California and Nevada yeah. and there. So what? why do you think that is? And what was the difference between the two rushes? Okay, they were about 30 years apart. The California gold rush was 1849, the 49ers. Yes. And the Colorado silver rush was 1879. That's about when it ramped up. So you had all of There were a couple things that that were different. The technology had evolved for separating silver from other metals in the rocks. And the thing that intrigued me, of course, is that the gold rush is before the Civil War and the Silver Rush is after the Civil War. So for me, there's this resonance and these repercussions from the U.S. Civil War that are still people who lived it. It was all would be only 20 years in the past. It would still affect them. And the incidents and the episodes would still have a resonance. And as to why it's not as well known as the Comst, well, I certainly didn't know about it until yeah. I... Yeah, and your family was from there, so yes. Yeah. The PR isn't as good, perhaps, or <laughs> the marketing people were a little quieter. <laughs> so why did you decide to write it as a mystery? You could have made a historical fiction or a romance, or what attracted you to the mystery genre? Yeah, I did toy with the idea of just making it a straight historical novel without a dead body, uh, that sort of thing, crimes. But as a child, I was a voracious reader. And along with everything else, I read Sherlock Holmes and I read Edgar Allan Poe. So I already had a tilt. Yes. Towards yes. And in my day job, I was actually sharing an office with another woman who was a physicist. Her name is Camille Minichino. We became very good friends. And Camille decided... Camille's this amazing person. She just decided, I'm going to write a mystery series based on the periodic table. Oh, my God. The hydrogen murder, the helium murder, and so on. And <laughs> so I got to see her on her path to publication and all the fun she was having. And oh, maybe I ought to try to turn my story into a mystery. It also gives you a framework. There's certain things that have to happen. You have to have clues. You have to play fair. There's justice to be served somehow or other. And I liked having that frame, which I could then go in and put the wallpaper and decide where the furniture was going to go. It was nice to have the house, <laughs> the yeah. frame of the house. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned the Civil War. And of course, the Civil War does feature in The Secret in the Wall because there's an aspect of the story that actually flicks back to that without perhaps doing any spoiler on it. Can you comment on that a little bit? Is that the only of your one of your books with a Civil War aspect? Actually, no, most of them seem to have a Civil War aspect. It's just how it works out as I start writing. 
And certainly the first, Silver Lies and Iron Ties is the second, definitely in that one. That's the railroads. But yeah, the secret in the wall. Now, here's the thing. I am born and raised Californian. Yes. I, never, I make my trips to Colorado and go, oh, I would love to live here. But then I end up coming back to California where my home is. And nowhere that I can recall in my educational upbringing was I ever told about California's role in the Civil War. I thought all that happened back east, right? Yes. Before some turn, what have you. And so as I started to delve into it, because I was curious, and I can't remember exactly what sparked that curiosity. It might have been the gold coins, actually, that got me thinking about it. And I was really surprised and really thrilled to find that there was quite a California history. There were people from both sides, supporting both sides during the Civil War, a lot of skullduggery, a lot of, oh, just a lot of things going on. And I felt, oh, that's perfect. I'm going to bring that in somehow. Yeah. So, yeah, I just love learning things along the way. That's just probably one of the most exciting things for me is learning new stuff when I'm writing. A lot of Southerners came to California oh. after the war was over, I think, as well, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They moved to the West. And particularly, as I read in passing, Los Angeles uh -huh. was quite an area. And I think because there's a lot of farming going on down there and it's warm, that it, probably the environment was a lot like the South, perhaps, yes. for growing. So turning away from the specific books to talk a little about your wider career, you are still working as a science writer and you've mentioned, did your friend ever finish all of the periodic table mysteries, by the way? <laughs> no, she didn't. She got up to, let's see, for the books, I think Oxygen was the last. That would be eight. Something I think she got further than that. And then she's, she has continued in short stories. Okay. And yes, further along yeah. now. But so you've yes. had a you've had a career in science yourself. How has that helped or played into your fiction career in any way? Oh, absolutely. Very early on in my science writing job, basically how it works is they assign me a subject. Okay, this project is just completed. They've got their results. Write an article about it. That's understandable to the general public. Yeah, And a lot of times it's something I know nothing about. So I have to contact the experts. I have to read the background. I have to really dive into the subject, understanding enough of it plus them to write about it. And that just became very handy when researching my fiction because I'm not a historian. I have no background in history. Everything that I learn, I am learning for the book, so to speak. Yeah. And, and also just writing of any kind keeps those writing tools sharp. Yeah. So the day job has been very helpful in those respects. Now, your first book was a, quite a humdinger in the sense of a debut novel. It got picked up by quite a number of sites as one of the best books of the year. And now you've gone on to write another seven of them. So I'm not quite sure how you define success as an author, but I consider that to be a success in its own right. And I wondered 
what you'd credit that with. Is there any particular secret you could share with others about how to keep it going? You know, that's an interesting one. And uh, a secret. I don't know. For me personally, I have to be passionate about the subject. And if I don't really care about the subject or can't get involved and excited, why spend my time writing about it? Yeah. And this is for me personally. I know many writers, it's a very workmanlike type job. It's got to write the next one. This is what's going to be about. Go. And you do it. And success is a funny thing. I was not expecting my little Victorian West mystery to end up so high on the radar. That first one, not at all. So it's serendipity. A lot of it is just chance. And I think, oh my gosh, I feel for people who come to me and say, how did you do it? I was just in the right place at the right time. I found a publisher after many publishers turned it down. I found a small publisher who said, yes, we'd love to do your book. It could have just as easily ended up in a drawer and never seen the light of day. Yes, I think it got, the Chicago Times made it a book of the year, I think, didn't they? Yeah, it was Chicago Times named it one of the best mysteries of the year. Publishers Weekly named it one of the best mysteries of the year. It won the Willa Award for Best Historical Fiction. You know, that firstborn of mine just racked him in. I made me feel very proud, very surprised. <laughs> That's <laughs> wonderful. Do you do more than one a year or what sort of a schedule are you on? Oh my gosh, I'm on no schedule. <laughs> I write them one at a time. My contracts are for a single book. It's because my life is as it is and I'm the kind of writer I am doing a book of year. I have seldom done that. Let me put it that way for the eight books. You can look at the publishing dates and get an idea. I've been at this for 20 years. I have eight books. How come I don't have 20 books? Oh, very good question. It it takes me as long as it takes. And I do tend to be driven by panic and deadlines. Closer it gets to deadline, the faster I write. And I suspect (laughs) that's true for a lot of people too. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Has the pandemic interfered with your life in any way or changed anything about your writing? Ah, it, it certainly threw me for a loop personally. And I was very worried about family members and work just did this. As for many people, it went 180 from being in the office, having an office environment, just working from home. That was it. All the equipment came home, connections made. This is it. And I'm moving my little setup. I sit out at the dining table for a while and then I go into an empty bedroom. So it, yeah, it really took the wind out of me in a way, but I did manage to write The Secret of the Wall during the pandemic. And uh, there are some pieces in the book, some scenes that are very claustrophobic feeling. Because that was as a result of how I was feeling while <laughs> stuck at home. But I know lots of writers or any number of many who just churned the books out. It was like, oh boy, I'm home alone. I'm going to write four books a year. It just wasn't me. Yes, that's great. Look, this is binge reading. And so we do like to ask you about your reading tastes. Have you ever been a binge reader in the past? And what are you reading at the moment that you could recommend to listeners? Oh, gee. Yeah, I have binge read in the past. And 
I'm trying to think of some. When I was a kid, there was just this wonderful, oh, I don't know. It just felt like I could sit and read for an entire day, just a whole weekend. By the way, I'm going to mention a couple of series that I have really enjoyed and found binge readable. One is Barbara Hambly writes the Benjamin January series. It's set in New Orleans in early 1800s, featuring Benjamin January, who's a physician. And her first book in that series is A Free Man of Color. And it's really a great book. Oh, I just think her whole series is wonderful. And uh, Louisa Locke writes the Victorian San Francisco Mysteries. And those are lighter, cozy, and those are wonderful. Her protagonist, actually, she's had several as the series has gone on, but it started with a woman who ran a boarding house. Fancy that? And I often give a nod to, to Louisa for her amazing research. A lot of times I will turn to her with a question because she did her PhD thesis on women in the West working women in the 19th century in the West. My gosh, she's a wonderful resource. And she writes wonderful stories. Another sort of a binge-worthy series, it's a historical detecting duo, and it's the Carpenter and Quinn Cannon Mystery Series. Features a former Secret Service agent and a female Pinkerton agent. And it's co-written by Bill Pronzini and Marsha Muller, who are two authors out here in San Francisco area. And those are great fun. Gee, I could mention two from your area, Sulari Gentile. Oh, and, yes, I'm yeah. familiar with her, yes. Yeah, she writes the Roland Sinclair World War II mysteries. And the first one in that is a few right-thinking men. That's a manly tire title. And the, those are great. And of course, Kelly Greenwood with Franny Fisher. Yes, yes. <laughs> Everyone knows Kelly Greenwood. She's very and, famous, yeah. I was interested when you earlier referred to Victorian mm -hmm. West because it's a label that I've only just recently become aware of. It has seemed to me in the past that Californian history has been a weeny bit overlooked. It's great to see people like you coming through now, but in the past it's not quite got the same size of niche as something like Regency England, has it? And That's I wondered true. if there is a thing called Victorian West that is starting to get some sort of traction. Is, do you think there is, or is that just my imagining? I hope it's not your imagining. I hope it is. Victorian West was actually coined by, oh dear, it's a book back here in my library somewhere by a non, in a nonfiction treatise looking at the West. Because so many people, I think, when they think of the U.S. West during this particular time frame, they think spurs, cactus, cowboys. And tumbleweed, yeah. <laughs> and tumbleweeds and a lot of dust, yes. Yeah. And it was so much more than that. It had these urban centers and very wealthy areas. And I think it was Michelle, author Michelle Black, who also wrote a wonderful series. She's not writing anymore, but she started using the term that she was writing mysteries in the Victorian West. And then we've got, you know, Louisa Locke with her Victorian San Francisco mysteries. There, there's a, certainly a group of us that are gently trying to push the idea that, yes, there was this other side of the West. I must confess, I'm writing historical mysteries set in California in the late 60s and 70s. And at the very early stages of starting to write, I went to a romance writers conference. I wasn't quite sure if I was even writing romance or what at that stage. 
but I pitched the very first story idea I had before I even had really written anything. And it was a historical story set in California in the 1860s. And the agent said, oh, no, we sorry, we don't handle Westerns. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I had no idea if this would be regarded as a Western. I've seen the quote on your pages that San Francisco was dubbed the Paris of the West by the late 60s. No, when I was searching for a publisher and an agent and what have you for the first book, I heard that so much. Oh, sounds interesting, but we don't do Westerns. No, it's a mystery set in the West. I almost think we must try and piggyback on the phrase Gilded Age, California. Maybe that would sell. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's a popular phrase. The Gilded Age in the Victorian West. There we yeah. go. <laughs> Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing that you could change about your writing career, what would it be? It would have been nice if I could have written a little faster, truly. And I guess if I was going to be just totally out there, I would have loved to have actually moved to Leadville and spent a whole year there, seen the entire change of the seasons. Maybe, I don't know, maybe sometime in the future, but ah, the future is getting shorter as I get older. But I would have loved to have done that. But Inez has moved on now, so you'd have to take her back there or find somebody else to be there. Oh, there's always ways to move your <laughs> around if you decide that's what you want to do. Yeah. 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 So what's next for Anne as writer? What have you got on your desk at the moment that you're working on? Okay, right now, I'll tell you this. I'm getting ready to retire from the day job. Uh-huh. So on my desk are things I need to finish up so that I can leave in a good position. I don't just want to throw papers in the air and say, bye-bye, folks. I want to finish the projects I've got. And I'm going to take just a little time to decompress after that. But I have ideas for Inez. I have ideas for Antonia. I'm particularly excited about an idea for Antonia, and I'm not going to go into it because it's still sort of rumbling around in my brain. And even some other time frames. I'm hoping that in retirement, I will actually have more time to explore all of this, right? Yes. You know, right now I'm just gathering research and bookmarking pages for particular ideas so that when I'm ready to sit down and plunge in, I'll have a lot of research at my fingertips. Wonderful. Now, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, yes. Gosh, I love to hear from readers and chat with them. That's one of the things that keeps me going. If someone sends me an email, you can find my contact information on my website. It just, I like I always say, it just warms my heart and keeps me going. It's one of the reasons I keep writing is people out there find that they love my books. They find that they're a wonderful way to escape. What They learn things. What more can I ask? But they can contact me directly through my website. I do have a newsletter sign up, but it comes out at random <laughs> intervals like my books. But I always do little giveaways, provide some interesting tidbits of the research I'm doing. Hey, folks, you like free books? Sign up for my newsletter. And oftentimes they're books from people that I admire. And not just my books, but people I've read. Yeah, this is a great book. I'm going to give away a copy. 
And I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. That's probably my primary social site. I dodge in and out of Twitter and Instagram. I'm still trying to get a handle. <laughs> I'm really slow. But yeah, so that's what I'd say. Take a look at my website. Contact me there. Send me an email. Take a look at my weekly blog where I take a slang or an idiom. Sometimes the slang dates from the 19th century and is a lost word. And I dive into it to figure out its origin and how did it come about. That's great fun. That's every Wednesday. Wonderful. Yeah. Now, we'll have those links in the show notes of this episode if people want to follow through with that. So that'll be on thejoysofbingereading.com oh, when your episode appears. So, look, it's been wonderful talking today. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Jenny. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks so much. Next week on Binge Reading, multiple series author Amy Van Sant, who writes gritty mysteries about a female bounty hunter, as well as hilarious cozies set in a Florida 55-plus age community. Critics compare her fast-moving, page-turning, funny stories to big names like James Patterson and Janet Ivanovich. So, if you're a mystery reader, you won't want to miss out next week on Binge Reading. That's it for today. See you next week and happy reading.